Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. How should you respond when sin devastates your life? That's the question that the book of Joel poses, and it's one that we're going to be discussing today. Joining me as ever is Matt Barfield. Hello. And joining me at least for today is Pastor Brandon. Hey, hey. Um, We are diving into the book of Joel. We've been going through the day of the Lord. So let's see if we can um, uh, do a little bit of review here. Can anyone tell me one of the three elements of the day of the Lord that we've been emphasizing in this series? Judgment on the nations. Judgment on all the nations. Very good, Matt. I was waiting on that Vindication of the righteous. Vindication of the righteous. Judgment on God's people. Judgment on God's people. All right. Now we're caught up. Hey, hey, there we go. And I promise we didn't review before this. No. No, we we didn't. We have learned. Matt is reading something from his phone. Uh, He may be looking at the notes. It's the book of Joel. I don't know why I'd have anything else on here but the book of Joel. Okay. Except for that text from my wife, but that's all right. Moving on. We won't read that out out loud. Okay. Um, So as we come to Joel, Joel focuses really on that last one, the judgment on on God's people. And there's a, a pretty famous sermon on uh, sermon audio. I think it's actually the most listened to message. And it's kind of interesting because at one point, and, and knowing the background uh, for this was helpful for me as well, but at one point he's preaching and he's talking about the church not being like the world, not being like Jesus Christ, or not being like Britney Spears, but being like Jesus Christ. And you hear the whole crowd like start clapping and cheering. And then he just, he, he pauses and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And uh, it's just kind of, you know, one of those mic drop moments. The book of Joel is in many ways the prophet saying, look, I don't know why you're cheering about God's judgment. I'm talking about you. And with this day of the Lord theme, it would seem that for many, uh, we see this in Amos and it's possible even here that, you know, people heard that judgment was coming on the wicked and they thought, oh good, all those bad people out there. And Joel comes in and brings in this counter reminder that no, God deals with his own people uh, when they go astray as well. And so, uh, Let's throw this question out. In what ways do believers today tend to focus on the fact that God hates the sins of others while failing to acknowledge that God hates my sin too? In what ways do believers today tend to focus on the fact that God hates the sins of others while failing to acknowledge that God hates my sin too? I think the the very name believer implies that we have these right opinions because they're God's opinions. We have these right viewpoints because they're God's viewpoints. And so I know growing up, I grew up in an environment much like our church today, and I felt like if there was some good thing to do, we're doing it. Like, like mm-hmm. there's no good thing we're not doing because we're believers. We we have the Bible. We're doing everything that's in there. And so I think there's just kind of a – because we have identified with Christ in that way, we maybe wrongly uh, whitewash some of our, our problems and and skate past our, the, the points where we are diverging from God's life, Christ's life in us, and we're actually creating something else. But it's hard to see it because our nomenclature is, I'm a believer. And so by virtue of using that term, I think it kind of moves us away from uh, sometimes the reality that we need to yeah, come face to face. I'm on the right team. Right. I'm on the right team. I, I think a big part of it just goes to the root of, uh, of sin, that there's a deceitfulness of sin. And yeah. we deceive ourselves sure. to thinking that, hey, you know what? I'm making all the right decisions and just we're, we're just, we're deceiving ourselves. And I remember multiple times in my life where I remember getting angry about something that someone else was doing and I'd just be upset. And then the Lord just kind of, as I was spending time in the word was just like, you know what? You're doing the same thing. And I remember just the moment that that light bulb came on and uh, the humility that washed over me in that moment Pride always comes back, yeah. Right. But it was kind of overwhelming, and I deceived myself into thinking that I dealt with my sin the way that I was supposed to, but they hadn't. Even though mm. probably I'd I'd committed the same exact sin, yeah. um, and just we deceive ourselves so easily. 
So even kind of putting those two together, there's a natural impulse that everybody has to excuse my sin, to, to ignore my sin, to minimize my sin. And then in some ways, when you, when you pair that up with, well, I'm on God's team and I'm doing the right things, that can sometimes even amplify it. And, and when it should make us humble right. and make us realize, wow, you know, like James 1, boy, look how far I have to go. I look in the mirror right. of God's word and I realize there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Sometimes the opposite can happen. And that is, well, I'm on, I'm on God's team. Therefore, I'm right and you're wrong and I don't have to worry about it. There's a lot of places where pride can find a, a, a purchase or a place to put roots in. And, uh, you know, we don't know all that. These, these other problems that other people have sort of should be a help to us, right? They should be an area where like, wow, they did that. Do I do that? We often don't ask that introspective right. question. We often go, oh, they did that. And that's, that's either shame on them mm. or pity on them or, you know, whatever that is instead of a, hmm, how does that, how does that reflect in me? Is there a reflection of that in my own life? Yeah. I mean, first Corinthians 10 says all these things were written for an example for us. Yeah. But instead, we look down on them. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I think. I think instead even, of learning yeah. from it, I think even as a preacher, it's it's a lot easier uh, and safer for me to preach about all the sins out there, mm-hmm. you know, in front of my group because I know I'm not going to step on any toes. I know people aren't going to get uh, upset with me, and it's you know you can get a hearty amen. And especially if you are actually preaching God's word, there's a sense of yeah, this is what's right, and it, it mm-hmm. resonates with people. And yeah, that's truth and good. We're doing that, and it can be really easy to make all the things that we're not doing or, or all the thing, um, the focus of this is God's forbidden that you're like, yes, he has, but look around the room. That's not, that's not the sin that people are wrestling with. People are wrestling with sin. And so just having the courage, even from a preaching perspective to be able to say, okay, here's, here's where our group is missing. It, and here's where we need to improve and be humble and seek God's forgiveness and, and seek to grow in these areas. When you bring it back to preacher, time, you know, in that kind of perspective, we are very good at cutting each other slack. I mean, mm-hmm. from preacher to preacher, from preacher to congregation, we, we, we tend to think well of people or want to think well of people because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? As a preacher, mm-hmm. I want to look at the group that I'm ministering to and say, oh, yeah. they're doing great. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. such a great preacher and there's just great people and everything's good, right? There's, an, there's a vested interest in that feedback mechanism psychologically. And then when it comes for, for us as preachers, I mean, I, I'm, I'm part of your group. We're, we're, yeah. we're, I mean, everybody's against us and we're together in this. So this must be we tend to want to think well of each other and we, and we cut each other slack when we should be helping each other. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help you. If I cut you slack, it doesn't really help a congregation if the pastor sees something and puts a good face on it. I know when I was growing up, I would get caught as a kid doing something and I was on the good kid team and people would look at something I'd done wrong and find a way to excuse me from it. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, I, I did this. Like I really did yeah. a bad thing. And they're like, no, 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 you're a good kid. And it's like, wow, there's a strong, there's a strong sense of we want to reinforce even even in the face of seeing something that's actually wrong. And we don't want to we don't want to reinforce a bad thing. We don't want to cut their slack. We want to be iron sharpening iron. We want yeah. to be people that truly help each other become like Christ. Faithful and, are the wounds of a friend. And I think what you just said, even with when you put that into real life, sometimes you see things in your kids and you're like, or people point it out and you're like, no, 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 they didn't yeah. do that. And really in your mind you're thinking, that means that I'm a bad parent. Yeah, that means that that's my fault. Like, right, and you you want to make yourself look good, even in your own eyes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, you got to be brave. I mean, we we got to be brave as Christians, and that, and that, that courage needs to come right where it's the dearest to us. Mm-hmm. I need to be brave where where in in those parts those relationships that are most dear to me, where I'll be willing to say, Lord, it's it's right in front of you. You know, it's you're, let your light shine on this thing and let us see it, because we got to. It's got to be right. It's going to be revealed one day. Let's deal yeah. with it. And 
very quickly because I know we got to move on. But in what ways do believers tend to focus on that, on sins of others and not ourselves? I think we we presume upon God's grace so much. Mm. Hey, should I continue <laughs> in sin that grace should abound? Yeah. And our flesh is like, yes, <laughs> mm. um, but but God forbid. And we we presume, hey, if I do this and I ask God to forgive me, I I know he's going to, which is a huge blessing. Yeah. But we mm. take advantage of it at times. True. Yeah. So this is really uh, a big part of the message of Joel is basically look in the mirror. I'm, I'm talking about you. Uh, and he, so he, he begins in chapter one, just to kind of give a, a brief overview of the book. Chapter one, there's a locust invasion that's just happened. And most of the chapter is calling on the people to, to wail, to lament, to mourn, to weep over what's been lost. Uh, and then chapter two warns that there is coming an army invasion uh, that's described in locust-like terminology. He's kind of building off of what he did in chapter one. But his point is what's coming is, is believe it or not, going to be far worse than, than what you've just seen. And then uh, he, he calls on them to repent, and then he gives his beautiful promise of what the restoration is going to look like. And really the second half of Joel from Joel chapter 2 and verse 18 all the way through the end of the book is what God is going to do for his people when they turn and when they repent and when they get things uh, right as they ought to. And so as we go through it, there's a couple of kind of just introductory things that we talked about in our first lesson, gave a general overview. But uh, let's talk about locusts because this is uh, lesson one, which we're also going to be covering uh, today. So this is a good transition. Uh, we don't really have locust plagues here in the West, at least not to my knowledge. I've never woken up and been afraid because I've heard an army of locusts coming. And so I'm just curious, Matt, have you had any interactions <laughs> with locusts in I, the Middle East? I have not. Oh. I have never had a locust plague descend on me. So I've seen a bug's life. <laughs> when I went to law school in Ohio. We had a problem with uh, flies because there was these chicken farms and these black flies Ooh. would cover houses and you couldn't see the house anymore because of the black flies that came oh. from the chicken farms. And so they brought in another species to clean out the flies, which was ladybugs. Ladybugs bite humans. I don't know if you've ever had a ladybug bite you, but it actually, I I haven't, but yeah, it can hurt and they stink and they're worse than the flies. So oh, really? it didn't, yeah, it didn't go well. We used to make them pets when I was in high school. Oh, uh, well, uh, anyway. We'd catch them and put them in a medicine bottle. Maybe they learned to bite from the flies. I don't know. Anyway, it didn't, it didn't yeah. go well in Ohio, but that's, that's the closest I've gotten to a plague of some kind of insect. Oh. Pastor Brandon, have you ever had any plagues? No. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the bug life reference. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, locusts are really fascinating, and as I've been going through this, I've studied all kinds of interesting things that don't really matter, but it's, it's interesting to learn about them. Uh, actually, just recently, 2019 to 2021, there's a locust uh, plague, really, that's happening in the Middle East right now, and villages and uh, cities are just trying to pre preserve their food. Um, one resource that I had gave this explanation of locusts. It says a locust will consume its own weight each day. Locust swarms have been known to cover as many as 400 square miles, and even one square mile could team with over 100 million insects. If the locusts laid their eggs before being blown out to sea, the problem would recur in cycles. A single female laying her eggs in June could potentially result in 18 million offspring within four months. So this is, wow. I mean, th these, are, these are nasty, nasty bugs. Um, again, some of the stuff that I was reading, it was talking about uh, just... The, the psychological impact on, on some of the children, you know, is they're trying, you know, they're off of school and they're trying to go out there and scream to keep the bugs away yeah. so that they have food. And, you know, they're going to bed and waking up screaming, afraid that the locusts are going to come back. I mean, this is, yeah. this is devastating. It's hard for us to really understand 
what it would be like to look out the window one morning, you know, no news, you have no warning that this is coming. You just look out and you see right. a swarm, a black wall coming your way with millions, if not billions of bugs that that's going to eat everything. Um, so it's kind of hard to like put that in modern day terms, but if we were to think through what might be like some modern day counterparts to this, um, you think of like a devastating event like that. It's just a complete disruption of your life. We're so used to controlling our environment. You have a single bug in our house and we're like, oh, there's a bug in the house. You know, this is an open air society. You know, the things just move in and out of houses all the time, right? That's just a normal, they're not sealed off like we are hermetically sealed in our little pods that we live in all perfectly done. I, I was in the Amazon once and, and there was this village that was kind of more like that, more open air village. You know, no real windows in the windows, just kind of shutters or whatever. And so we were, you know, there, was, there were bad mosquitoes in the night. And every time you opened your mouth, a mosquito went in. Ugh. Like it just, you, I was trying to eat dinner. And every time I took a bite of something, this mosquito would go in. Extra protein. So you had to spit first and then, and then put this, getting the bugs out. So, I mean, just it's, it's just a disruption to every kind of event you could think of. They're just, the bugs mm. are always there. It's, it's, it's not much fun. So you, there was a mosquito plague that you survived. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I don't even know if there's anything we we can really compare to it because I thought about just the loss of food. Like every grocery store has empty shelves. We get upset. And we're like, oh, yeah. this grocery store didn't have peanut butter, so I had to go across <laughs> the road to get <laughs> to another the peanut store. Peanut butter you like? Ran out of toilet didn't paper. Didn't have chunky yeah, peanut God, butter. Um, but then that that still doesn't do it because just like you said, every time you walk out the door, you're just getting bombarded with yeah just annoyance i think food wise it's probably like what happened in the great depression with the dust bowl out in the midwest and mm -hmm. you know that kind of it sounds kind of like that where people would yeah. walk out and the sun's gone you know and they just huddle in their houses trying to stay alive and then brush brush the dust off and try and grow something in that like it was you know that devastating yeah man it's it really is hard for us i think to to fully picture how awful this would have been. And, you know, I tried to, as I was writing this, um, think through what would be some analogies. And um, the Great Depression came to mind. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps like a World War One and a World War II. It's, it's different, but it's this idea of like, this is a generation-defining awful event that it's hard to even put into words how awful this thing was right? Um, that happened. And so <clears throat> this happens, this comes, and this is really used as a, as a call for the nation to wail and to weep and to mourn. And as I mentioned, I think uh, chapter one is just a long series of calling on this group to mourn and this group to wail and this group to lament. And it just, it goes through and it, it, it starts off with the drunkards, which is kind of interesting because uh, that's not necessarily like where you might initially think to start. Like, um, you know, tell the drunks to go start wailing. You're like, why, why start with the drunks? But as I was reading through it and, and reading some commentaries and, and thinking through it, it some several uh, people made the observation. I think this is. I think this is really good. The drunks, in some ways, represent what the whole nation has done, mm -hmm. and that is, they've taken the gifts of God, and they've abused them, and they've become lethargic and apathetic, and dependent on them. And it's kind of you know, for the drunks, it's like, hey, guess what? Your wine is gone, like it's just gone, and you're not going to have it, and you're <laughs> you're not going to have anything. So, get ready to be hungry. And in a way, that's really what's being told to the whole nation. Like, you've used God's gifts, you've abused God's gifts. And Joel doesn't go into this theme a whole lot, but other uh, other um, uh, prophets do. Uh, Hosea is to the northern kingdom, but I, I know he deals with this theme a lot, that the, the gifts of God can make people um, apathetic, to make them lethargic. 
And uh, as a result of that, God sometimes takes those away, and it's a, what we would call it's a wake-up call. So, And that definitely applies to the church. I, I was talking yeah. to a pastor not long ago about Luke 12. Uh, Jesus gives this parable, and he says, Who is the faithful and wise, wise steward? Uh, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. So the master makes a steward responsible for the food so he can give it out to the people in due season. He says, blessed is that servant. But then he gets down here in verse 45 of Luke 12. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and begin to, uh, shall begin to beat the men servants and maids and to eat and drink and to be drunken. So instead of taking what the master gave him and dispersing it for everybody's mm. benefit, he's consuming it and hurting the people that he's supposed to be serving. Right, so this is this is Jesus. That warning that you just talked about is exactly what he's saying here. Uh, we can look and say the Lord's not coming back; He's not here right now. So I'm just going to enjoy what I got. I, you know, he gave yeah. this to me. This is a blessing to me. I'm going to just live this blessing up as far as I can, instead of saying He gave His blessing to me to be a blessing to someone else. I think uh, Deuteronomy six, uh, very important passage for the Jewish people. And he says in verse 10, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Mm. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. And yeah, we, we see this pattern. We see it happen a lot in Scripture where God dispenses blessings and then rather than uh, use those blessings to serve him or um, to be a good steward of them, people uh, take them and they abuse them. And drunkenness is, is just a very tangible illustration of that. So let me go ahead and we've talked about this a little bit, but why do you think that is? Why is it that God's good blessings um, can cause us to become lethargic and apathetic? And how do we avoid allowing our hearts to become dulled by pleasure while living in one of the most affluent cultures in history. <laughs> Man. <laughs> the youth pastor is, is dealing with this a lot, I think. Oh, right? My mind is, <laughs> is turning very quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, my mind, when I kind of read through this and previewed what we're going to talk about today very quickly, just kind of went to Haggai. And it was, I, I heard a message recently that kind of just uh, really st stuck home to me. And, um, these were people who came back from Babylon. There wasn't many of them. They were the ones who said, hey, we're going to leave the, the comfort of Babylon, go back, and we're going to rebuild the temple. And so they started to rebuild the temple, and then they stopped. And uh, basically, God comes to the prophet Haggai, and he says, hey, it's time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste. Yeah. Yeah. They, they stopped doing what God had called them to do because— they started building their own houses and they started making their houses really nice. They weren't doing anything that was necessarily wrong and sinful, but they were distracted. And so God tried to get their attention. Hey, you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. And so their affluence, they started to, it started not to be as fruitful because God was trying to get their attention and uh, we, we don't want to get to the point living in an affluent society where God has to start taking things from us to get our attention. But later on in the chapter, in chapter one, he says, you know what? You need to prioritize building my house and following me and doing what's right. Um, go, get, get wood, prioritize one thing, um, and, and stop worrying about all these, these other things and these good intentions you have. Because they said, hey, it's not time. We're going to do it. Yeah. 
but not right now. Right yeah. now, I'm just going to take care of my house. And as soon as I get this in order for me, then I'll build the temple. And they, they literally said in the first part of this chapter, it's not time yet. And um, I think we can get lulled to sleep when we are experiencing blessings because we kind of equate that with, hey, you know what? God's happy with me right now. Mm. I, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm not doing anything that's going to cause his judgment. So therefore, I'm okay. And, and we get into this complacency where... Uh, we forgot to prior, forget to prioritize what God has called us to do because we're not here to get rich and be comfortable. Yeah, I think with my perspective coming from mission board work and and having gone around, I think I often am encouraged because I see people who who do the opposite of what you just described. You know, they're 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 people that God's given blessings to, and they're like, man, we're going to use this over here, and then and then great things are happening globally. Yeah. You know. It, it's awesome to see someone give sacrificially and, and put up a church in Southeast Asia. Um, it's wonderful to see people do things that, that literally move the dial around the world and, and make a difference. People get saved and discipled and, and growing. It's, it's like, I, I guess maybe sometimes I'm too optimistic because my, my view is from, I get to see that. I get to work at the mission board and see these gifts come in and see the missionaries that get the gifts and go do awesome stuff with it. Recently at the end of 2020, some incredible gifts came in at the end of the year and, and people were saying, Hey, I want my, I want my money to, to do something. I want to go mm. do something globally. I think time's short. That's that's always true. Uh, yeah. For whatever reason, they felt more urgency, and and they're like, we're we're giving some of the principle out now. It's not just the the you yeah. know the income. It's it's the actual principle because we want to get stuff done globally for God's glory. So I mean that's that's just the money side. But there's also you know if anybody was there uh, and heard Norman Rose talk from the mission story of India, you know, there's a life lived like like we hope to see lived. You know somebody mm. who said, well, what can we do? to see the Lord glorified in India. And, and here's this man who retired and now has made 70 trips to India hmm. uh, over a period of about 30 years, uh, or maybe not quite that many, but a lot of years he's been going back and forth to India to see many, many churches planted, many, many help people helped and, and good things happening. So, you know, I, I do think there is reason to be encouraged and reason for us to, if we want to help people say, hey, there it is, it's right there. And then you also can do that. And then the only thing that hurts me in that is when I tell them, look at that cool thing and you can do it. Oh yeah, that's not me. It wasn't that person either until they did it. Like, <laughs> like it's okay. You're not, it's not excluded from you. You can, or you're not excluded from it. Go do it. And the good news in Haggai is they did. Yeah. And it's they, one of the few times in scripture where yeah. the prophet comes and they're like, oh, okay, we better do that. Yeah. And so they, they did re reprioritize and did what God wanted them to do. We had uh, someone in our group who made the observation. I thought it was really helpful. He said, you know, Wesley wrestled with this because he, he noted that if you follow God, it tends to bring material blessings. Right? You think of Proverbs, the people who are um, working hard and being diligent and following the Lord and honest business practices, all that. Those are the people who tend to, to get ahead. And so then those blessings tend to bring spiritual apathy. So, he, you know, like how do you break this chain mm -hmm. of obedience brings blessings, brings apathy? And his solution to it was to be giving. Um, and that, you know, you should have the mindset that says, okay, when I get these gifts, I want to give them to other people. I want to give money to other people. I want to... I want to use my uh, what I have uh, to bless others, and I thought that was, I thought that was really good. So, um, I think we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up there. There's a lot more we could talk about from um, Joel chapter one. It's oh a, yeah, it's a rich chapter I know, for real. It, um, really interesting theme on just mourning and mm. taking seriously the consequences of our sin. And so often we kind of want to scoot past that, or we want to immediately jump to, well, God forgives, and He does. Mm -hmm. But James also says to be miserable and wretched and mourn, let your joy be turned to sorrow, um, taking seriously the impact that our sin has had and hopefully learning from that and being scared away from it.
next week, we're going to dive into how we should think about the future consequences of our sin as we cover Joel 2, 1 through 17. There, Joel warns of a coming army that will be far worse than a locust plague, and we're going to see that God wants sincere repentance from our hearts, and he wants us to take that repentance with the utmost seriousness. All that and more next week as we continue our way through the series on the day of the Lord. See ya. Bye. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. I'm on the Colonial Hills Podcast.